welcome to um, another episode of Future Readiness with Zara. If you are new to the platform, welcome. We do like to make the circle bigger. Um, if you're returning, how wonderful to have you back. And I hope that you've brought a couple of cousins and sisters along with you. Um, as you probably know by now, this platform is a, is a gathering of minds that I come across in my very interesting life. And many of these minds are people I've come to, to respect on account of just what they're doing, using their unique skills and talent to create abundance in the world. And so today, we have got a very new friend to me, and he's Niraj Mystery. I will tell you that Niraj and I met via via, because when I, when I read something someone writes, I often just reach out and go, hey, how are you? Can I please have a conversation with you? And through the work that I do teaching, we, I was then able to reach out to uh, the institution and Niraj is going to tell you all about what he does. So, Niraj, before I, I said you too much, welcome, welcome, welcome. It's so good to be able to speak to you in a, in a sort of different vibe. Oh, thank you, Zah. I'm honored to be on your podcast and I'm looking forward to the conversation we're going to have. So, if people were to ask who Niraj is, how would you introduce yourself? How do you, how do, you do that? Um, so, um, you know, I often get asked that question and I uh, have told colleagues that if you have difficulty in answering the question on who you are professionally, that probably means you're a transdisciplinarian. And that's a big, long word. Uh, I know it sounds like one belongs to some sort of cult or sect like the Illuminati. Um, but a transdisciplinarian is someone who's worked and studied across various disciplines. And if you look at the fact that at a university level, we divide all our work up into disciplines like law and medicine and humanities, uh, economics, etc., which sort of translate to professions in the world, uh, people go into business or nonprofit or government, etc. Um, but when one has worked across various disciplines, that's what I call a transdisciplinarian. In a very formal way, transdisciplinarity is uh, um, a study uh, of issues um, uh, and challenges across various disciplines. So it's more of an approach uh, to how things work. And, uh, and perhaps I can give a little example of that. Uh, you know, as uh, uh, so my transdisciplinary background is I trained and worked as a doctor, uh, a medical doctor. And then at some point I became an economist. And then at some point I sort of uh, also have delved into complementary and alternative medicine. Um, but if I ask people to wash their hands uh, to prevent germ transmission, uh, and, and I do that wearing my white coat, only a few people wash their hands. Um, but if I bring in a priest and the priest says cleanliness is next to godliness, lo and behold, nearly everyone washes their hands. And so for, from my point of view, the outcome I want is people washing their hands. And, and I'm agnostic to which way it happens, whether it's the priest or me that achieves that outcome for a greater societal good. And that's what transdisciplinarity is. It's when we bring different perspectives from disciplines together. And, uh, and, and so that's the area I'm involved with now. 
as a doctor, economist, and uh, a more holistic uh, health practitioner. So when you tell people you're a doctor, do people then start telling you about their medical problems? Or how do you <laughs> Most commonly at parties, <laughs> and, and, and I actually have people like lifting their shirt to show me a rash or something like that. Um, <laughs> there's actually a good joke about that. A, a doctor a, and a lawyer is at a party, and, uh, and someone asks the doctor about a medical issue, and uh, after they go away, uh, the doctor turns to the lawyer and says, does this happen to you? Uh, and the, the lawyer says, absolutely. And, and the doctor says, well, what do you do? And he says, well, I give them the advice, but the next day when I get back to my law office, I send them a bill for it. Uh, and, and the doctor said, oh, very interesting. And lo and behold, the next day the doctor goes to the office and there's a bill from the lawyer. too. <laughs> 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 Um, absolutely. Well, that's how lawyers are, but we're not going to hold that against them. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, but so, so, but what does, because I mean, I'm really interested in how you got from medicine to, to the economist and to the territory that you're doing. And then maybe you can just walk us through what exactly you do on an everyday basis. Because if all of us are now starting to hear words like intersectionality, uh, transdisciplinary, transdisciplinarity is intersectional, right? So maybe people are listening and they're going, oh, so I can elevate my speech at the next party and go, it's not just intersectional, it's not transdisciplinary. Transdisciplinary. You see, even I, the PhD is very transdisciplinary. So if you're listening, don't worry about getting it right. The point here is, Niranj is suggesting that the how life works, which is what we also advocate in our practice, is that we we say we work at the at the intersect of business, creativity, and, and, and culture, where by culture we mean society. And we're seeing more and more business leaders who are open to that line of thinking, adopting new ways of creating and therefore new ways of problem solving. And that's what I do on an everyday basis. What do you do on an everyday basis? Um, uh, that's a great question. And... And, and let me start off by saying that transdisciplinarity as an approach to the way we see the world and complex challenges um, is not substitutive of our disciplinary specialties and, and, and work. It's in addition to. So when I get onto an aeroplane to take a flight, I want to make sure that that engine and instrumentation panel is done by an expert engineer in his field, right? And so we need specialization in certain areas. But when, we, when we're dealing with complex challenges, especially social challenges, then we need to have a transdisciplinary lens because it often involves a technology, an economic policy, a social engagement aspect, uh, cultural nuance, et cetera. And, and so it, it, uh, transdisciplinarity uh, lends itself to very particular types of complex problems that we face in the world. And what I like to say is that transdisciplinarity starts off with a conversation. Uh, you know, I actually want to put on a t-shirt, a doctor, a lawyer, and an engineer walk into a bar, dot, dot, dot. What happens, you know, when you put people from different sectors together? And so where I work at the moment is a place called Future Africa, 
which is a platform at the University of Pretoria. And it's a transdisciplinary platform to take on these sorts of African as well as global challenges through the lens of saying, how do we bring these experts from different places? And we found that the best conversations happen like you and I had over a meal. And so how do we create that enabling environment for those conversations to happen? And to that end, Future Africa is a campus with accommodation, a wonderful restaurant and, and uh, a meal hub, uh, and just beautiful open spaces where people can sit on benches, walk through the fields, uh, in conference rooms, and have these conversations. And in our accommodations, we have uh, researchers and professors from around the world, all over Africa. They come here and they stay. And in that engagement through this accommodation, they have these wonderful conversations. Um, and, and just a, a little flavor of the conversations that they have is, is we've organized the thematic areas of our work into what we call challenge domains. And these are sort of saying, well, there's many complex challenges in the world, especially in Africa. Um, how do we sort of make sense of them so we're not thinking too broadly? Uh, uh, my, my little uh, substantiation for having challenge domains is that it's very important to have an open mind, but not so open that your brain falls out, um, <laughs> which means that we have to think, uh, yeah, yeah, um, and, which means we have to think in particular realms. And so the challenges we deal with are sustainable food systems. And uh, I, I like the, uh, our tagline for it. It's sort of addressing issues from the farm to the fork uh, and that entire continuum that's required to, to get people fed um, in a healthy way, in a sustainable way. The other area we look at, and this has become really apparent in the world now since COVID-19, is One Health. Uh, we know that animal health, human health, and environmental health are intricately connected. You know, when we, when we go down the path of deforestation, we are exposing human beings to more pathogens that live in the forest. And all of a sudden, we find new diseases emerging from that in, uh, uh, context. So that rainforest environment with pathogens that are usually in animals, uh, viruses and bacteria, and then they spread to human. And, and all of a sudden we have these epidemics and outbreaks. So One Health deals with the intersection of those three areas. Uh, we're dealing with things like law and governance. We're dealing with sustainability, which is critical for our planet now. And we also uh, tackling the issue of youth, education, empowerment, and employment. Uh, ultimately, this is our future that we need to build. Um, and so that's a worthwhile yeah. investment and a complex one at that. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm, I'm listening because I'm thinking sometimes people would say um, social scientists, which is what you've become because you are, you are, you are a converted natural scientist. So welcome to the club. So people accuse social scientists of of almost trying to do a kumbaya with what's going on in the world, right? So when we speak about um, using our unique skills and talents to move the human family forward, people listen to us and they go, how are you going to do that? But what I'm liking about what you're saying is um, focusing the mind on what you call challenge domains means 
you're picking a lane, you're picking something that is truly pertinent to how the human family can, can prosper, but also more importantly, you are defining a landscape where you are going to channel your energies, right? Because if you try and do everything that nothing gets done, then nothing gets done well. So let's talk about youth and youth unemployment because I call it. I think I think the problem is youth employability, not necessarily youth unemployment, because you've got so many programs. I mean, the youth employment service, the president's endorsement thing, um, has been going on for a little while now, and I'm still not convinced how quickly and how many people we are, we are touching. But what is your unique take? And what is your intended approach uh, on youth unemployment? Um, so there's been many, many studies to understand how do you make successful human beings from what they exposed to in their childhood. You know, and uh, um, uh, I, I did live in the United States for a while and President Obama at one of his State of the Union addresses was making a strong case for early childhood education. And, and you know, I was taken aback by that. I was like, well, isn't that obvious? Like, did he have to actually make that point in his national address uh, type of thing? And, and, you know, everyone's quite aware of the political infighting in the United States. So I guess he had to make that point. But we have to start off early and early childhood education is absolutely important together with that um, safe and secure home environment. And when we look at that in South Africa, we have many challenges around those sorts of environments. So from um, uh, the point of view of what the state has to provide in terms of welfare, support, subsidies, we have to sort of address that if we are to do youth employment uh, employability further on down the line, because that creates the environment for them to get an education, et cetera. And, and the moment one talks about welfare or subsidies, you know, people are like, oh, how much is that going to cost? And are we going to manage that? And, and when you look at South Africa, there's such a broad range and diversity of people at different economic levels, uh, access levels, that we have to focus on those that are worst off first. And in a, as an economics term, that's where we get our greatest gains. So it's not about, oh, my God, we have to deal with the whole country, but we have to deal with those pockets of people uh, who don't have access to things. So I think that's the first prioritization, uh, that we start off and build a solid foundation. The second thing is, what do we do with the youth that we have now and the high levels of unemployment and unemployability? I, I like that term. Um, and this is about skills, training, and development. Now, when people think about education after school, they always think about fancy university degrees and PhDs, right? Um, and yet there's a wide range of skills. Something that we used to do really well in South Africa is technical colleges, teachers training colleges, uh, fitters and turners and mechanics. These were all... Uh, important skills. And, and what's really important for us is to respect work. Uh, there is honor in all forms of work, from the gardener and domestic to the CEO of a company. And, and we need to build that culture in so that people will go for trainings 
to become uh, tradespeople, teachers, etc. And these are critical jobs. Uh, you know, if there are no teachers and caregivers, well, fancy investment bankers cannot do their work uh, type of thing. So I think we need to see the system in, in a more um, interrelated, interdependent way uh, and, and build that ethic of respect for work, irrespective of the level um, and, and find uh, a broader range of training that we can offer uh, our youth. You, you, you raise a very interesting point because my mother actually went to a nursing college and what she loves about it is that she could earn while she was training and that's how she raised her siblings. So the point, the, the thing you're speaking to about normalizing working with your hands or normalizing um, all forms of like affording respect to all forms of work is it's, it's, it's an important thing because then we, then we get over the I'm the CEO, you're the janitor, I'm the one who has a computer, you're the one who works with a clipboard at the gate. Because all of those things actually are about respect. It's not so much about what work you do, it's about just respect for the other people, which, which I think we are missing as a society. I mean, I think the, the level of anger and the level of, 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 I guess, inequality when it comes to stature is part of what is also creating all these many problems that we're experiencing. But yeah, that's an interesting take on, on youth. Because I'm, I'm past the point of saying we've got to keep them in, like people are being perpetually trained and they're being perpetually upskilled, but you're not truly seeing the transition. Because a kid goes to university and ends up with um, biblical studies as a graduate subject. Who's going to hire them? And so, yes, it's fine that you want people to elevate their gaze, but I'm not exactly looking to hire someone with, with a biblical studies major. And, and you know, Zah, you can speak much more eloquently to this, you know, with, with your business background. But if, imagine if we attached training to particular industries or the, the well-developed private sector infrastructure, so they become part of the training uh, as well. And now we're not just training people in a theoretical way at an academic institution, but we're training people hands-on for a particular job. Uh, that becomes customized. It's a huge value add. And, and they have some sort of employment, you know, and, and then there's payback mechanisms for fees, etc. But it ties them into a job. And I think we have to be creative about how we build that pipeline. Absolutely. How do you? How would you encourage policymakers to start thinking about it as one ecosystem, as opposed to trying to hive off public versus private health? So, so, um, I was just really moved when I read one of uh, Steve Biko's speeches. Uh, and, and he was just an amazing orator. Uh, but in one of his speeches, he talks about the envisioned self. Uh, and, uh, and he spoke about the envisioned self uh, uh, for us as South Africans and as Africans. And I think it, we all have to get onto that same page of envisioning what is it that we want for ourselves and our countries. And the envision self is really important because it's a choice that you're making on who you want to be and what we want to be as a country. 
as opposed to reacting to a whole lot of stuff. And we are living in reaction mode to uh, what the politician says or what our uh, apartheid masters had said or what our colonial uh, oppression had done to us, etc. And it's just a constant reaction to the point that we've forgotten or ha don't have a moment to stop and think, what is it that we want? And, and the reason why I'm going here is because I feel this is the cultural shift we all need across all sectors and levels in South Africa to actually find our core in order to move the country forward. So there's so much suspicion and mistrust and, you know, uh, collapse of things and infrastructure and services that we've lost trust, we've, we've uh, uh, lost ownership, etc. And we need that unifying sort of force and that cultural shift and I think that comes from ownership uh, and, and envisioning what it is we want together. And I think we did go through bits of that uh, when uh, uh, President Mandela came into power, when we went through, through the Truth, Truth and Reconciliation Commissioning, where there was a reckoning of all of this. Um, but all that needed to be sustained. And, and I think we need to get back to that. So to come back to your question then, I think when we start unifying in that um, uh, envisioning of who and what we are as a people and a country, then we can work together as civil society, government and the private sector and public sector for the greater good. I hope that doesn't sound too idealistic, but I do believe we can do it. No, no, no. It's worth, it's worth pursuing. Trust me. I mean, if we don't wake up with something to look up to, then we might as well just stay in bed, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, and 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 when I, what what also I'm hearing you say is part of what I also I find incredibly problematic. Like I find it problematic that we live in a country where it is okay for somebody to get sixty-seven questions wrong and still get a metric pass. The suggestion that 33% is enough for you to get through the world and be a, a, a super, super divine and, 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 and talented and, and additive human being is problematic for me because the idea of envisioning implies that you are going to lift your gaze to a station above where you currently are. So it is, It I guess it's always going to be those pieces, right? So if we're going to estimate ourselves to a higher plane, then education becomes a key point. But if we're raising a generation of young people and telling them that it, it's okay to just be a third of your complete potential. Um, I, I mean, I, I think the, the pass rate uh, or, um, or the passing grade is, is uh, part of a system that is now, you know, has this apathy. You know, what's the point if even if I pass, there isn't a job available or I can't go get further training or I can't afford fees somewhere, et cetera. So, so we have to look at it in that uh, continuum and that comes back to the envisioning and the ethic of hard work is going to pay off, uh, you know, because we are a talented and very capable nation. Uh, um, but we just need that right lever to to sort of motivate and 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 get people uh, feeling in that sort of way, and and it's it's almost chicken and egg, right? 
So without that enabling environment, people don't have the incentive and, and that ethic to work in that way. And, and without them doing that, they don't change the environment. Um, and, and so it's literally those that are in power and those that are the haves of this country that have more bandwidth to start taking those first steps. I like that, the, who have the bandwidth to start taking the first steps. You actually mentioned something about healing, which I guess for me takes me back to your medical background now transitioned into a social um, environment. What do you think is the role of healing in society, actually? We can talk about that. Um, and I'm thinking about healing in a much deeper way than just the physical body, right? Is, is that your question? Yes, yes. Absolutely. Um, you know, a, an interesting observation also is that um, South Africans are actually a, a, a very grounded uh, people in their faiths, in their respective faiths. And, and there are many here in South Africa. And, uh, and I think when we start looking at those lines across all the faiths, um, uh, and, and uh, trust me, this is not my uh, natural inclination to talk about this sort of stuff. But if we look at the commonalities across all of them, they're really unifying for people. Uh, they provide solace and they provide uh, uh, comfort. And that's where the healing would start in, in a South African context. Uh, you know, other countries might go for a very rational or science-based approach. But when we look at the fact that the TRC, the Tran uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, was headed by uh, Bishop Tutu, um, that, that provided the grounding and let people engage in a way that was secure and trusting uh, I think that can be an important part of the healing process. Um, I do believe conversation and discussion is part of it. Uh, you know, talk therapy, essentially, is, is what it is. Um, you know, it's, it's also interesting, the business world, which can be very technical and, you know, profit-driven, etc., is also looking, and, and in the business world, they talk about how the soft issues are the hard issues to deal with. Um, and, and those soft issues are the human relational aspects, your uh, engagement with clients, your engagement with peers in the workplace, how you treat people that you're managing, how you uh, engage with people who are higher up than you. And, and those relational elements, you know, are pervasive throughout society. Um, and somehow we all got into our own camps and our own lanes and stopped having those conversations. That said, after living abroad for a while and then returning to South Africa, um, one of the most beautiful things I find about South Africa, and you know, you, you go to an office park for a meeting, from the time you drive and the security guard lifts the boom gate and greets you with this beautiful smile and you talk about the weather and that sort of thing to the reception desk to all the way meeting with the CEO. There's this warmth as South Africans that we have, um, you know, and it comes out every now and then in these day-to-day -day engagements. 
And that, I think, is the best starting block that we have to start building that sort of communal feel to our society. Wow. Wow. And here I am about to tell you about an incident where I have walked up to a parking meter um, to pay for my parking and the meter said, no, I didn't need to pay. So I turned to the lady behind me and I said, um, I'd like to be, could you be my act of kindness and I will pay for your parking? And she looked me straight in the eye and she said, I don't need your money. Right? And that made me so sad because it points me to, to the thing we're talking about, that if you've been so bruised by the lived experience, you actually don't even recognize kindness. So, so institutions like yours, much as it may feel like you are doing the big shifts, right, the turning the, the, the Titanic around, all of this stuff rests on what you just said, the relational quality of our engagements. Um, so you as a, as a party master with a citizen who's voting for you, you as somebody who's running, who's at an institution where you're driving these big conversations, understanding that at the core of it is a human being, right? Not a number, not a patient, not a voter, not a supporter, but a human being. Because I, I really think that we have to go back to that place where we place humans at the center of everything. And then we might begin to start seeing some changes. Or do you think I'm being too idealistic? Uh, no, I, I fully agree with you. And, and what is it that we can do to induce that shift of appreciating everyone as human beings and, and uh, just to get a little nerdy about this stuff, when, when we look at, at the world, we, we come up with a measurement of everything, right? And we plot everything on a curve, right? And so on a curve, people higher up on the curve may earn, earn more than people lower down on the curve. People are more educated than others uh, you're higher up on the curve and people own more property, et cetera, et cetera. And so we, we, we measure people through all these indices and plot them on a curve, right? And automatically that creates this hierarchy, which then stops appreciating us uh, and, and another person as a human being, but as a metric. Uh, and some sort of measurement, right? Uh, oh, we all in awe of someone who pulls up in a Ferrari compared to like a Mercedes or something like that, or, or whatever it might be on, on that measurement. But what if we got rid of the curve and we just appreciated everyone as a point in space? So there wasn't a magnitude in their measurement, but it was just appreciating them for who and what they are. And, and I'll give you one example that, that we did here at, at Future Africa. Uh, so we have very academic staff, professors and postdocs and people who have PhDs, and they involved in the research part of the opera, uh, institution. And then because we have conferencing facilities and operations and accommodations, we have our operational staff, very administrative, uh, et cetera. And because we have this huge campus, we need lots of cleaners and gardeners and people to maintain it. And what we instituted was a monthly lunch where we would all just get together and the kitchen would provide us with this huge meal 
um, uh, usually a curry or a lasagna or a braai uh, type of thing. And, and at first, we sat at different tables based on the fact that we were researchers or operational people or cleaning staff. And then after two months, we started mixing up. And we found so many things in common as parents, as people who, who were contending with the traffic, uh, you know, load shedding, being the common enemy of everyone type of thing, uh, or, or hindrance. Um, uh, but we, we celebrated and shared in our common humanity, irrespective of the hierarchy of employment. And, and it was a beautiful, beautiful feeling. Uh, just engaging with people in that way. And, and, you know, this is how we're consolidating our little community at Future Africa. Wow. I'm, please invite me to the next one. I, I will drive all the way to be part of the social experiment. But, you know, when you were talking about uh, food security, I didn't know this, but um, someone was saying to me that we have a growing number of people in South Africa who are actually food insecure. Then I then I started thinking about what is food, right? Is food, does food need to have nutritional value? Because if it needs to have nutritional value, then clearly there is a, there's a, there's a, a clash here. Because I remember watching an episode of on DW on YouTube and they're talking about how Africa is being taken over by genetically modified foods. And yet, on the other hand, you were saying, how do, we pre- how do we create and protect the food value chain to make certain that what moves from farm to fork still has nutritional value? So how do you resolve those tensions as the institution? Um, so at some point in the 60s and 70s, we, we said um, there's a huge caloric deficit. That is, people are not getting energy, enough energy, right? And and these are when those pictures of those little Kwashioko or Marasmus kids, uh, you know, thin gangly limbs in, uh, across Africa were going around. And, and so then there was a huge push just to like, let's fatten these babies up. And, and they weren't getting, while they were getting enough pap or rice or mealy meal, they weren't getting enough protein and vitamins and nutrients, right? And so now we're very, very focused on the quality of food rather than just pushing uh, a quantity of, uh, uh, of calories. Uh, so so that's, that's the first part. The second part is looking at our um, uh, food industrial complex, right? Mm-hmm. And that's all about production for sale and then um, uh, uh, maximizing profit. And, and we get so conditioned into um, uh, consuming what the market has to offer us rather than thinking through what it is that we want. Um, uh, you know, I don't mean to quote the Obamas too much, but, uh, um, uh, but uh, uh, their chef, uh, while he was at the White House, after his uh, uh, tenure at the White House, uh, started an effort called Let's Get America Cooking Again, right? And it was just a simple phrase. But when you think about it, when you cook, you have to source your ingredients, 
right? Whether from your farm or from your local green grocer or on the side of the road, you source your ingredients. And when you cook, you do that as a community in the family. So it's not someone's gone out for McDonald's or someone's eating in front of the TV. You do it together. And the impact on that would be huge uh, on thinking through what you're eating, how you're sourcing it, and the community you make while you're eating. And it's a simple, simple thing. So all that to say, I think we have plenty of food. It's just poorly distributed. And we're not directing our resources in the way that's most nutritious to take care of the most mouths that we have to feed. Um, uh, and when you look at the fact that in many parts of the world or in many urban areas, there's so much food wastage, um, uh, it becomes an issue of uh, maldistribution. I, I learned of, uh, of a statistic uh, the other day where 50% of milk uh, that's gotten on small farms, etc., is actually lost. It's wasted, 50%. And that's a huge force, a source of protein. And the reason why is that there isn't refrigeration and pasteurization techniques in many of these places, right? And, and so it's, it's uh, how do we find a simple engineering fix for that, you know? And um, there's an initiative now with solar stove, uh, solar fridges. Uh, I love it. We're using the sun to keep things cool. Um, uh, uh, but but these are the types of efforts that that we need to do. So I do think we have uh, uh, a lot of resource. It's just we're not allocating it in the best way possible. And also, and of, of course, it doesn't help if we live in a country like ours with this high unemployment that people end up buying what they can afford, which is not necessarily what is good for the body. And if we're not eating properly, then we're not sharpening the brain, which means that our quality of imagination is also affected. So this stuff is just cyclical and it's systemic. So so we can't just do one thing at a time. You see, the term applies, transdisciplinarian. This stuff works because everything is connected. I look forward to my mother listening to this conversation and going, baby, write that down. And I'm going to go, no, I'm going to call Neeraj and he can write <laughs> <laughs> so you speak about a research component to the institute what sort of are people then probing in the area that you've called your challenge domains or how do people get to access the institute like someone is listening from slovakia i said to a colleague the other day are you sure it's not a part she said no it's a human being so someone is listening from slovakia and going i love the sound of future africa how do i how do i get to um, well, firstly, go to our website uh, and, uh, and and get in touch. So we Future Africa at the University of Pretoria. Um, and we have a lot of information on there that talks about our challenge domains, uh, uh, many of the researchers involved in, in these particular fields. Um, and, and interestingly, uh, and here's a, another really nerdy concept, which is the sustainable development goals. Um, all of us in academia know it and in the, in the policy world. But, but these are the, uh, uh, the goals that the world, the entire world, uh, decided were priorities. All countries of the world signed up to this. Their government signed up to this. And when you look at the sustainable development goals, it's not just a South Africa problem or a Malawi problem or a China or, or U.S. problem. 
It's all of our problem. So when we look at these challenge domains, they relate to many countries in the global north or wealthier countries, as well as our countries uh, across Africa, parts of Latin America and Asia. Uh, and, and so understanding these challenge, challenges in a way that is uh, empathetic. Uh, so you see yourself in someone else's shoes, but you also see how the challenge impacts your life. And in that connection is when we start working together uh, because these problems are, are common to all of us. Um, we work with vast networks of universities and uh, uh, across the, the, the continent as well as internationally. Um, and then there are also many networks that we engage with that thematically deal with uh, with these sorts of challenge domains. So we find the intersections and we try to be really efficient to find that research and that data and information that actually has real world impact for these complex challenges. That's fine. So then how do you measure success? How do you get to the end of the year and go, okay, we've done a good job last year? Um, so <laughs> it took us a long time to mess things up to the extent, <laughs> so it's going to take us some while, uh, a while to uh, to get things right. But I think what's important is we just putting one foot in front of the next, have a temporal vision or a sense where we're going, and and feel that progress that we make month by month, year by year, moving in that right direction. Uh, you know, I think. Uh, uh, following a trajectory and maintaining momentum is critical. Uh, it, it's just one step at a time. Uh, uh, as as uh, I used to use that uh, saying from Africa, uh, how do you eat an elephant? Um, uh, one bite at a time, right? Um, <laughs> I did use that. I did use that uh, at an international meeting and someone came up to me afterwards and he said, in Africa, you guys eat elephants? <laughs> I was like, no, it's just metaphoric. <laughs> now you've created another problem for us. <laughs> I am I am interested in your in your in your definition of sustainability because yesterday I was in a room where somebody asked, uh, "What are you doing to be a sustainable leader?" And some people said. I'm recycling, I'm not using a micro oven, I'm using an air fryer. Somebody said I'm, I'm cycling to work. And I said I'm reading more. And I could see that the, the audience thought, you are not in the room with us, are you? Because I think a lot of people still think of sustainability as environmental sustainability. I'm thinking of sustainability as continuity. What is your personal take and does the institution have a position on what sustainability is? But I want to hear your take because it's going to be a lot funkier. So one of the research domains, like I mentioned, is sustainability science. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so this is a huge, huge field on judicious use of uh, resources, etc. And if I had to sort of come up with a word to describe it, I would say it's um, endurance, right? And, and, and how do we get that robust endurance uh, as an individual in our environment, 
in our relationships with people, for institutions, etc. And all of that means judicious use of your own resource, right? And so work-life balance, taking time to read, means that you don't burn out. And that's your sustainability strategy. I love it. You know, take that extra yoga class, go for a jog, listen to music, play with a puppy um, type of thing. And, and, and that will prevent people from burning out. It reduces uh, 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 high blood pressure, reduces heart rate, etc., which then makes your body more durable to last longer. So that's at the level of the individual. And if you think about it in that way, it's exactly the same that we have to do with the environment. Um, and, you know, when you look at some uh, countries are moving down the path of the four-day work week, and they're finding that when people work four days a week, they're more productive and they have more time for themselves and their families. Um, that's an important sustainability strategy. Uh, so I think when we look at that enduring engagement uh, that is robust and goes on for a longer time, that's that's how I see sustainability. Before I let you go, Niraj, officially on this platform, because I'm going to see you elsewhere, I am interested in, firstly, Future Africa as a name. Something must have fueled the imagination to go, we're not going to, we're not going to be Africa's future, but we're going to be Future Africa. So in your view, what does Africa's future look like? like what's your sense? And why was it so compelling for you to contribute to it with your brain power? Um, oh, this is a huge, huge question. Okay. So firstly, I, you know, and one of the, the reasons why I live in Johannesburg is because I think that Johannesburg is this beautiful, sprawling African metropolis. It's pan-African, it's international, uh, you know, you, you see different faces, different colors, different ethnic groups, etc. And I bring that up because I think the future of Africa is going to be that way. It's going to have diversity. It's going to be very, very international. From countries that are investing here to countries that are partnering with Africa, etc. So it's becoming much more of an international location, right? Uh, so, so that's one. Uh, vision of the future. The second is I think Africa is critical to the world. And you look at many of the wealthier countries that are sitting quite, uh, dare I say, smug, right? Yeah. They don't see the interconnectedness of Africa in terms of their dependency and supply chain. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. One is I think we have so much arable land here that it's going to be really, really important to use that for better agricultural purposes, not just to feed Africa, but to feed the world. Uh, another example is, um, uh, is that, you know, we always talk about the Amazon being the lungs of the world, right? In Africa, our Congo forests uh, uh are also the lungs of the world. So we are sequestrating a lot of carbon from, from the air, and that's critical. And then the third area uh, is the workforce that we have. Uh, and, and every country looks at something called a demographic dividend, which is 
how much of the young workforce are, uh, are, are coming into the, uh, uh, the workforce uh, in order to help the older retiring workforce. And that is important for a country's sustainability. But when you look at the world, that the wealthier countries have much older workforce and we have much younger, you start seeing the demographic dividend in an interconnected way. And Africa is going to be critical for that. So that's my sort of two-minute uh, visioning of the future of Africa. Awesome. Uh, so when, when you were planning this thing, um, I know that when you look in your diary, you go, Zah wants an hour of my time. What are we going to be talking about for an hour? Guess what? We have been speaking for almost an hour. Yes, I know, I know. I know, I know, I know. So I'm just deeply grateful because I can, like my mind is blown as, as my goddaughter says, like mind blown. So my mind is blown and I'm certain that the people who are, whoever you are and wherever you are listening to this, your mind is going to blow. From now on, Full Circle will be called Future Readiness with Zah and we'll still have those thoughts, expanding conversations and the streams of encouragement that you enjoy. If you already subscribed to Full Circle with Zah, you are automatically subscribed to Future Readiness with Zah. And you can continue to listen to all the conversations on the podcast platform of your choice. But also let me know if there are any specific topics or guests you would like us to host. Enjoy, like, and share. And until the very next time, I wish you clarity and courage.